the last couple of weeks we've begun our new series on our identity in Christ. And I'm not going to ask us to name the two points I'm going to tell you because it's safer that way. I've got other things I'll ask you to stick your hands up for in a second. The two points being, of course, the first week being our acceptance. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are accepted. And that we have to really grasp hold of that and take hold of the security that we have in Jesus Christ. And this will never waver. The second week was loved. That we are loved in Christ, not because we are worthy and deserving, because secretly we all know we're not, but because of who he is, his nature is love, and that this is expressed towards us. The third week, this week, is forgiven. Forgiveness being again one of these really, really important themes in Scripture, not simply the fact that we are forgiven, but also that because we are forgiven, we are to forgive others. So I want to start by asking, put your hand up if you find forgiveness easy, if you find forgiving other people easy. That's good. I'm glad nobody stuck their hand up. Because if anyone has, what I was going to do was hand over and you could take the rest of the sermon. So the fact that nobody stuck their hand up, yeah, that's, that's well, it saved your skin but left me with work to do. Forgiveness isn't easy. We find forgiveness really, really hard. When people hurt us, when people upset us, when people wrong us or even betray us, we find it really, really difficult to move on from that. Sometimes we will use strategies that we will justify in our minds. But we know deep down are wrong. So we will tell other people because we will justify this by saying I'm using them as support. But really what we're doing is slandering the person that's hurt us. Or we will use mechanisms such as gossip and tell many people. This is a prayer request. Is it? Have, you, have you ever seen that strategy when people say, this is something that's a prayer request, but really what you know it is, is gossip. You may have done it, or you've probably very likely heard it. But it's something that frequently happens. And all this kind of stuff happens because we struggle with forgiveness. And we, one of the real reasons we really struggle with forgiveness is because we know that the Bible actually has a lot to say on forgiveness. Jesus, when he'd given us the Lord's Prayer, finished it. When he was teaching his disciples with, forgive as you have been forgiven. And as you forgive, you will be forgiven. He puts almost a clause in our forgiveness. Now we know theologically we are saved by grace and by grace alone. But yet, there is this place in scripture where it says, if you're not willing to forgive, you are on dodgy territory. And we know this in our minds. So it makes the fact that we struggle to forgive even harder. It increases the guilt. It increases the wrestling. It increases the discouragement. Because we know we find this incredibly difficult. Yet, we can't escape the fact that Jesus tells us, you have been forgiven so much. So you're called to forgive. Our Bible reading, which we are going to do in point two, but you can open your Bibles if you want at this point, is going to be from Romans, and it's chapter 3, verse 21 to 27. You can get that ready just now if you wish, 
or you can pull it when we hit that point. But I want to approach forgiveness pretty much using the same strategy we've used the, the, the last couple of sermons, first looking at God, then looking at us, then looking at the implications of what we have explored. So firstly, God. Now, I did a lot of reading for this week about this concept of forgiveness because I know it's one I struggle with and I know it's one others struggle with. And one of the things that a lot of the authors would speak about at its core is what is our view of God? And it, it tends to, ju- to break down to we will have one of two views of God. This unmovable judge or a doting Santa Claus. And, we are, and that most people are going to fall into one of these two categories. If he is this unmovable judge, he's someone that we're going to try and negotiate with. So for instance, if we want to do something, or if we want the benefit of something, we're going to try and negotiate with God. So for instance, we might say, God, I really want to eat this entire box of chocolates. But I know it's not good for me, so tomorrow I will exercise. But tomorrow comes, and do we exercise? No, we don't. A negotiation, but the reality is we break our end of the deal. Now that that example is quite superficial, but we do it with bigger things as well. And the more we break our end of the bargain, the greater the the gull develops. And we all will have this nagging little doubt of, what if God actually calls me on this? I'm in pretty deep trouble. So there's this negotiator, this unmovable judge with which we can try and bargain with. But yet, the tools we use to bargain with only deepen the trouble that we experience for ourselves. Or there's the doting Santa, this God that sees no evil and hears no evil. And really we think, ah, he's just quite happy with me as things are. Now I'm not sure actually which one is more dangerous for us to fall into. Because the implications of this one is that really what we think is at our core when all is stripped away, when all the factors, influences are stripped away, what is at our core is something good. But the Bible tells us that that's not the case. For us to think there is something good at our core is moving away from what scripture actually teaches which is the truth is that at our core is something which actually needs fixing and needs sorting. So the doting nice guy that doesn't actually do anything or check her wrongs or thinks oh it's because they've had a bad week or because their mum said that to them when they were five years old. That God isn't real either. He's made up. And it's not the God we see in Scripture. And to continue to unpack, well, what is God like? I want to head into a territory that preachers don't like heading into and we actually don't like talking too much about. And that is the concept of God's wrath. What does God do about sin? 
The concept of God's wrath is an unpleasant topic. We don't like to speak about it too much because we struggle with it and we know it's certainly something that those around us don't want to hear as well. But yet we're not consistent on this concept either because there are certain places where we demand God's wrath. For instance, when we see various, very obvious examples of evil in our culture, we expect God to be angry about that. And we want, or we might even demand, that he does something about it. So, for instance, when we know children are being sex trafficked from one country to another, we expect God to be angry about that. We anticipate that he's going to do something about it. When we see ISIS doing the devastating things that it's doing, committing genocide and wiping out ancient tribes of Christians in the midst of many other people that are being brutalized by this regime, we expect God to be angry about that and want to do something about it. And this is where we are inconsistent potentially when it comes to God's wrath because we can't just keep it out there. We've also got to ask the question of what in me might produce that kind of anger from God. And to discuss this, I want to speak about Martin Luther. Now everyone knows of Martin Luther. No, I'm not talking about Martin Luther King. Martin Luther, Martin Luther the Reformer. Martin Luther became a monk not long before the Reformation was triggered, and one of the big things that he wrestled with was what was inside of him and the position that this meant he would have before God. And he based this basically on Jesus' two commandments that he gave to people. The first of those being to love the Lord your God with basically everything that you are. He came first. He was your primary love. You loved him with everything that you are. And Martin Luther looked inside himself and knew that he was nowhere near that first commandment. He was miles and miles away from it. And the more he reflected on this, and the more he reflected on his failure to fulfill that commandment, and of course the second, to love your neighbour as yourself, the more defeated he felt, the more afraid he felt. And it caused him so much angst and fear. But what it did for him was drove him into the Bible. And when he was driven into the Bible, he had this breakthrough when he discovered that justification, being made right, being forgiven, was a gift. And not something that he himself had to earn or maintain. This was something that Christ had achieved for him. For Luther there was great fear because he knew when he looked internally that all he deserved from God was wrath. That there was not a good core. But inside of his heart was only that which was breaking the commandments of God. Luther discovered a God that was neither the immovable judge nor Santa. Of course, many people would say when it comes to God's wrath or anger, well, all this moral stuff, can we not just, well, do away with some of that? Surely God might just let it slide. 
And we can fall into that kind of thinking. I've got a quote from a guy called Miroslav Volf. And what he says is, God is neither above moral law nor below it. Rather, moral law is an expression of God's very being. And when we look at justice through this lens, we see that God is just and therefore acts justly. God can't suspend justice any more than God can cease being God. Morality, the moral law, couldn't ever be abolished because it is an expression of God's nature. It won't go. It won't change. It won't waver. God won't change his mind. So the sure situation then is that scripture is absolutely right. One of the things the book of Romans actually tells us is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person. And when you look at the deep wrestling that Martin Luther did with this, you can see actually, yeah, that's definitely the case. Before God, there isn't a good core when all is stripped away. There is a need for forgiveness. The reality is that for every single person that was born and is now and will be, there is that difficulty of knowing that we have fallen short of what God is looking for from his creation. So the key question then before God, who is the creator of all things, for who no human being can flee from, what's he going to do in response to the sins of humanity? To, in response to our sins, even as Christians. Because none of us would ever argue that we were able to follow even the two commandments that Jesus fulfilled and summarized everything into. God is neither that unmovable judge, and he is not Santa. But what has he done? Remarkably, he's chosen to forgive And this brings us on to our reading. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 27. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace As a gift for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now there is a lot of complicated language in these verses. Some words uh, it took me four years at theology college just to be able to pronounce. But what this tells us at its core is that God's response to sin, to your sin, to my sin, was to act. Was to act by coming as Jesus Christ. Jesus who set his face to Jerusalem and to a cross. But what he achieved on that cross was this possibility 
There's guarantee actually. It's not a possibility. It's a guarantee that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is made right. And that means forgiven. Made right, justified. That's what it means. Just before God. And God didn't do this because he looked into the future and knew at some point in our lives we were going to be worthy. That we were going to tick all the boxes, that we were going to finally hit that grand, amazing moment where we're perfect. God did it knowing every failure that we, did, that we have done and will do. And he did it because, as we said last week, he loves us. But through Christ, what he did was open up forgiveness. And not because God changed his mind and got rid of all the moral stuff that I've just said he can't actually do away with because it's an expression of who God is. He did it because when Jesus went to that cross, as the guy on the screen said, he pleaded on our behalf, took our sins upon himself and says, Father, forgive. And because Jesus took our sins, the Father is able to. God dealt with sin on our behalf because he loves us. We are made right, forgiven in Christ. And how is that to be gained? Is it by money? By works? By doing specific courses? No. And Appears to have come out. Just put the centre mic on. I'll just use that. Is it? Yeah. Aye. Can folks hear me still? Excellent. I'll just use this. Those those things don't like me. It's gained by faith, by trust in Jesus Christ. This is what makes us righteous. You know, we stand, as in my case, or sit, as in your case, or slump, as in some people's cases. Here this morning, forgiven, not because we're worthy and perfect, but because we trust in Jesus Christ. This man, this God, who lived and walked and taught and challenged and died and rose and ascended on high. Because we trust him, we stand right before God. I don't know what kind of week you've had. Whether it's a week that's been filled with success. Or a week that you would judge as one that's been filled with failure. A week in which you might feel it's brought you closer to God. Or a week that you might feel has driven a huge wedge between you and God. But what I do know, because the Bible tells me it, is it doesn't matter what kind of week you've had. What matters 
is have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Now I know that most, pretty much everyone sitting here this morning has placed their trust in Jesus Christ. That's why we get up on a Sunday morning and come to church. It's not for the comfy seats, although they are quite comfy. Or for the excellent soundproofing, which muffles pretty much everything, although it is very effective. Or for the excellent tea and coffee at the end, although, well, I can't comment on the coffee because I don't drink it, but the tea's not bad. I would like to think that the reason we get out of bed at an awkward time after no doubt a busy week is because we trust in Jesus Christ and are motivated and driven to gather as his people. So I wonder, do you trust God? We all have faith in Jesus Christ. But how much is that trust in him underpinning our life so that whether we have a good week or a bad week doesn't destroy us? But even if we have a bad week, we're thankful because he's our saviour and our hope is in him and not ourselves. I want to give a wee illustration. In ancient China, people wanted protection from barbarians and the hordes from the north. So the Great Wall of China was built. 30 feet high, 18 feet thick, and more than 1,500 miles long. The Chinese goal was to build an absolutely impenetrable defence. Too high to climb over, too thick to break down, too long to go round. The people trusted and this wall to keep them safe. But during the first hundred years of the wall's existence, China was successfully invaded three times. It wasn't the wall's fault. During all three invasions, the barbaric hordes never climbed over the wall, broke it down, or went round it. They simply bribed the gatekeeper and then marched on through the open door. Pretty unfortunate for after all that work and as I read that it brought to mind some verses that Joe shared at the prayer meeting on Wednesday night and this is from Isaiah 26 and it's verse 1 in that day everyone in the land of Judah will sing this song our city is strong we are surrounded by the walls of God's salvation what we have as Christians, is that we are surrounded by the walls of God's salvation. In Christ, we are secure, we are forgiven, accepted. But do we trust in those walls? Do we trust in the walls of God's salvation, in Jesus Christ himself? And in those walls, there is no gatekeeper that's going to be bribed. We are safe. There is nothing that can snatch us from his hand. He tells us that. What is our trust in? Truly and fully. Is it in ourselves to have good weeks, to tick certain boxes, to make ourselves feel righteous? Or is it in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, who tells us that with our trust in him, he will take us to heaven. The perspective will influence just how much failure and defeat we feel 
and our walk in Jesus Christ. Because, and this is the third thing, we are meant to experience freedom. The Bible tells us Christ came to set us free. Now let's clarify right at the start of that. That Christ has came to set us free doesn't mean he's come to set us free to do whatever we like. That's not the case. There is a very clear moral code that we are given as Christians. As people that belong to his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we have to take on the culture of that kingdom. Which means there are things that we aren't supposed to do. That we're set free doesn't mean we are set to do whatever suits us. But what it does mean is that we are free from sin and its hold on us. Free from death and that grip that it has on all of creation. And what it should mean is that we are free from the guilt that can follow us. Free from the failures that can still haunt us. Free from the insecurities that can so often restrict us. Free because in Christ we know that we are loved, accepted and forgiven. Bought by God to be his children. That should give us hope. That should give us joy. We can't do what we like. But we are free in him. So my question this morning to us is, do we feel free? Or does the struggles and the discouragements and the frustrations of knowing that we aren't perfect, much like Martin Luther, still drag us down? Or do we instead take hold of the truth that verses such as these express, as complicated as the words may be, that what Jesus Christ has done has made us just and he did it as a gift and it's received by faith. So my plea to us all this morning is take hold of it by faith. Don't try it by works. We'll never do it. Take hold of it by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Saviour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, your mercy, your acceptance and your forgiveness. Father, we thank you that this is given to us not because we deserve it, not because we could merit it, but is given as a gift. And we're asked to receive it by faith. Help us, Lord, to take a real thorough grasp of this gift of forgiveness. To free ourselves from the guilt, the frustration, the accusations that the enemy will throw at us. And to put ourselves in a place, Lord, where our eyes and our hearts are on you and not ourselves and our failures. And to trust in you, knowing that you have made us just. 
Father, help us to focus our minds and our hearts on Jesus, our Saviour, to trust in his forgiveness and to enjoy the freedom that we have therein. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.